Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Ethan mentioned uh, one of the key questions that we are asking in this series, and that is, again, if your life was like a piece of fruit, what would it be, sweet or sour on the inside? Now, that's not for you to answer, just yourself. Just think about that. Now, the outside part of the piece of fruit, of course, is called the skin, and it's the part that we can see. But that is not our favorite part. That's usually not why we buy a piece of fruit, is for the skin. It's the inside that, that really matters most. A fruit can look pretty good on the outside and turn out to be sour or even rotten on the inside. Now, there's some fruit that's kind of reverse that looks pretty bad on the outside, like pineapple, for example. That's a kind of a weird-looking fruit on the outside. It looks pretty bad. doesn't look like something you'd want to eat. But, boy, some of the sweetest-tasting fruit is on the inside of the pineapple. And it's kind of the same thing with people. What you see on the outside is not the most important part of the person. Some of the best-looking and most impressive people can be pretty sour when you get up close to them and maybe have to work with them or live with them. And some of the least impressive people sometimes surprise you and turn out to be, well, the sweetest and most nourishing of all people. And God is not interested primarily in the skin, in the way we appear on the outside. His focus is on the inside part of us, who we are when we are peeled. You know, it's when we work together. It's when we live together. It's when we face the pressures of life that we are peeled, and what's on the inside comes out. And what comes out is either sweet or sour. It's either rotten or it's pleasant. Now, left to ourselves, without any effort, without any help, we will, just kind of like a piece of fruit sitting there, we will become rotten and bitter on the inside. And what we talked about last week is it's when we restore our broken relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, it's at that point that we are reattached to the kind of life that he grows on the inside. At that point, the life of his spirit, the Holy Spirit, begins to flow into our lives. And we talked about how that works last week. And over time, he begins to grow in us some amazing fruit. A list of the kind of fruit that he grows is found in the New Testament book of Galatians. Here's what we read in Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, you can't pass a law and make these things appear. They grow like fruit. Now that is an amazing basket of fruit. Wouldn't it be a delight to work with someone like this, to live with someone like this? I mean, I think we would all like to be more like the items on this list and less like, well, like who we are. The big question, of course, is how. How do we become more like this? Now, we read a list of qualities like this, these fruits, and we want them in our lives right now. We would like to just be able to order this and and become this kind of person, but they're fruit, which means they grow. And the challenge for us in this kind of non-agricultural economy is we don't grow a lot anymore. And so we kind of don't understand the importance of the process. We look more at the product. In fact, our economy is made up of three major sectors. Service is 77%, industry is 22%, agriculture is just 1% of our gross domestic product. What that means is that we know all about the service sector, mostly. We know about good customer service, we know how to purchase products, but we're not so familiar about the process that was behind those products. I mean, we of course know that food grows in the dirt, and that products are manufactured, but we rarely grow what we eat 
or make what we use, and so we tend to kind of almost ignore how these things came to be, the process. And that has turned us, all of us, into consumer-oriented thinkers. But it turns out that the most important parts of life are more like farming than fast food. They just take time to grow. You can't just drive up to the window of life and say, hey, I I would like to be happy, or I I would like to love better, I I would like to have peace on the inside. Now, those matters, they grow, and it takes time, and it takes the right kind of effort. And most importantly, it takes the miraculous power of God's Spirit to grow these fruits. So, in this message series, we're looking at the process. Not so much the product, but the process that God uses to grow these amazing fruits in our life. Today, we are beginning with the first one, and that is love. Now, this is first on the list because, well, it's first on everybody's list. It's what the vast majority of all of our books and all of our songs and all of our movies are really about. It's what brings the greatest joy into our life and also the greatest pain. Now, as you might expect in a consumer-driven culture, we have this idea that love is something that just kind of happens to us. It's, it's like a product that just shows up and then just as mysteriously it disappears. We don't really understand the process that's behind the love that we all want. You know, we, we think we just click with this person and we don't click with that person. If it's romantic love, well, we, of course, we mysteriously fall into it and just as mysteriously we fall out of it. But God describes love here as a fruit, particularly a fruit of of his spirit, of his life. In fact, it turns out that love is the essential component in all of the rest of the fruits that were on that list, all of the good fruits that God grows. Love is, well, it's kind of like the fructose. You know, fructose is a sugar that's found especially in fruit. It's what makes fruit sweet. It's not just found in one fruit, it's found in most fruits. And love is like that. Love is kind of like the sugar that sweetens every one of the fruits of the Spirit that we just read. Now, like any fruit, love requires the right kind of soil, the right kind of nutrients and tree in order for it to grow. Now, the components of the soil are described in the book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament portion of the Bible. Now, Timothy is a young first-century pastor, and apparently he's facing a lot of challenges and problems in his church. And so his leader, his mentor, the Apostle Paul, writes this letter, first of two letters that he writes to Timothy, but this letter contains primarily instructions about how to deal with some of the challenges, particularly some of the challenging people. And Paul is fully aware that when Timothy starts to confront some of these individuals, that he will most likely be accused of not loving them, which to a Christian is a very serious charge. And Jesus made it very clear that Love is the most important commandment. Love for God is number one, and love for each other is commandment number two. And so whenever someone charges a follower of Christ of not loving, that stops us in our tracks. That causes us to ask serious questions. Are we, are we not loving? Is this not a loving thing to do or to say? That's a serious charge. And so in the opening chapter, Paul, before he gives him the instructions about how to deal with these challenging people, Paul explains what real love is. There's a lot of confusion about what love is. And particularly, he talks about where love comes from, the nutrients in the soil that's required to grow real love. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The goal of this command is love, 
which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let me summarize what Paul is saying here. He's saying, Timothy, I'm telling you in a few verses, a few chapters, to have some pretty hard conversations and do some hard things that the people in your church are not necessarily going to like. But I want you to understand that the goal of this command is love. That's, that's what I'm talking about. This is, this is what love really is. Now, I know sometimes it may not feel like love. And they will accuse you, maybe, of not loving. But that's only because they don't understand the kind of soil that love needs to grow in and what real love is. Love doesn't just show up mysteriously in a person's life any more than fruit just suddenly appears. No, it, it grows. It comes from, as Paul says, it comes from some places. It comes from the nutrients that are in the soil. And when it comes to love, Paul said there are three essential ingredients that are key to the growing of real love, the fruit of love. We're going to look at these this morning. The first, it says, is a pure heart. A pure heart. Love grows when our agenda in the relationship is not selfish. Now, the kind of purity that's being talked about here is a purity of motives, not a purity of perfection, but a purity of motives, a purity of heart, a singular desire to help another person, and here's the key, with no strings attached. Hidden agendas and mixed motives damage relationships because what they do is they use the person that we're relating to, that we are pretending to love, as a means to get what we want. This is called being double-minded. We have two agendas, two motives at least in this relationship. One mind is the spoken mind. It's the I care about you front that we put on. But the hidden agenda, the second mind is, and here's what I really want from you. We don't come with that out front because we wouldn't get what we want that way. So we we hide what we want in a shell of I really care about you. But it's not real love. We're double-minded. We don't have a pure heart. We've all experienced this. You know, an individual calls you up and talks to you, and they begin by talking about, you know, how much they care about you or how interested they are in your life. And, and then pretty quickly they get to something that they want. And you begin to realize, you know, I think the only time that they call me up is when they want something. And you begin to wonder, now, is, do they really just care about me, or is it really because I've got something that they want? You begin to wonder, is, are there two motives here? Now, the test, of course, for a double mind or an impure heart of motives is if you say no to something that somebody wants. The moment you say no or do no, if their heart towards you is not pure, if they are double-minded, they're going to get mad. And at that point, you'll realize oh, okay, this, this wasn't real love. What this was was a deal. It was an arrangement. They really wanted something from me. You see, love is, is not a deal. Love is a gift that's freely given. It's not a commodity that's exchanged. It's not an arrangement whereby I'll give you this, and if you give me that, then we'll call that love. That's not love. Love is a gift. Now, it's okay, of course, to ask somebody to help you to ask them to do a favor for you or ask their help or something. But here's the key, not as a condition of the relationship. If your heart is pure towards the individual that you've just asked for help from, and they say no, 
It has no negative effect on the relationship. You may be disappointed, but you realize that they have every right to say no, and it was just a request, and they said no, and that's fine. It has no impact on the relationship. And Paul is warning Timothy about what's going to happen when he says no to some of the people in his church. They are going to accuse him of not loving them. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah. It happens because that is the oldest trick in the book. Literally, in the book of Genesis, it's the oldest trick. It's what Satan accused God of when he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. God had said many yeses. We have no idea how many. Yes, you can eat of this fruit and that tree and this tree, and you can do this and this and this. And then he said, here's one no. There's this one tree, and you are not to eat of the fruit of that tree. That's the only no that he gives. But Satan, as he tempts Adam and Eve, uses that one singular no to accuse God of holding out on something good for them, in an essence of not really loving them. He says, no, the reason God says you can't eat of this is because he knows the moment you eat of it, you're going to be like him, knowing good and evil. And he doesn't want you to experience what it's like to be like him. Now, it was a lie. It was partial truth, but mostly lie. And in doing so, what he was saying is, this no means God doesn't love you. He doesn't really have your best interest in mind. And they believe that lie about God and also about what love really is. And in doing so, they and all of their descendants, all of us, not only have sinned, they and now us tend to define love the way Satan suggested it to be defined, and that is getting what we want. And that has warped our understanding of love. We hear this phrase over and over again. Maybe we even say it. If you love me, you will fill in the blank. Basically, give me what I want. Do this for me. And it seems to us that's what love is, but it's not. We have made love more of a deal to be struck than a commitment to give freely. And that has made love very, very unstable. And the reason is because the deals are almost never written down. It's okay to make a deal. It's okay to sign a contract whereby you exchange one thing for another. But don't call that love. That's just a deal. And whenever we have these deals that we call love, they're hidden deals. That's why this is purity of heart. We, we really can't see the hidden deals that are going on inside of us and inside of other people. And because they're hidden and we don't really know what the deals are for sure, what that means is you never know when the deal's off. You never know when the relationship might blow up because they're not coming through or you're not coming through. So purity of heart begins where the waters first became muddied in our relationship with God. It will be impossible to develop and grow a pure heart towards others without working on developing and growing a pure heart towards God. What that means is that we need to be tearing up all of the deals that we've made with God. We make a lot of deals with God. And whenever we make a deal with God, what in essence we're doing is we, we are elevating ourselves to his level. Because that's what a deal really is. A deal occurs when two people have something 
that the other one wants, and they can agree on a trait. The problem is, we don't have anything that God needs. God loves us. That's his decision. Not because we've got something that he really needs. And so whenever we decide to strike a deal with God, it's because we have begun to elevate ourselves to his level. And that is very dangerous ground for us to stand on. Whenever we elevate ourselves to the God level, we have just put in a request to be humbled. I don't know when that request will be fulfilled, but it has been filed. And in my experience, the experience of being humbled is almost never gradual or a comfortable descent. It's usually pretty, pretty painful. And the deals that we make with God are like the deals we make with each other. They're not written out. In fact, oftentimes, we're not even aware of some of the deals that we've made with God until he doesn't come through. Then we're upset. Then we're aware of the deal. When my wife and I and our two young kids moved to California back in 1990 to pastor this church, I thought that my motive for doing this was completely pure. There was nothing in my heart, as far as I could tell, other than pure obedience to God on this matter. But then, our house in Texas wouldn't sell. And every month, we lost money. For five years, we kept chasing the market down, just behind the market. That happened for five years, until we finally sold that house for almost half of what we paid for it. And I was fuming. Why? God, we had a deal. I know we never signed, but I thought we had agreement on this. And I wasn't really aware of this deal until it went south. But if I were to write this deal out, it would read something like this. I sacrifice a lucrative career, God, and then you agree to reward me in some way. Seemed reasonable. Seemed logical. Now, I knew it probably wasn't going to be financial, but this was the opposite of what reward looked like to me. And God saw that deal that I'd formed in my heart. He saw that my heart was muddied by this. And he set out to make sure that that deal didn't work. And in my experience, that's often the way God responds to the deals that we make with him. As soon as we put the ink in our hearts on a deal with God, God, in his own time and way, begins to tear that contract up because he wants our relationship with him to be pure. He loves us. He wants us to learn how to love him. And deals get in the way of love. So what's your deal? What deals have you formed with God and with others? If you can't put your finger on what the deals are that you've made, here's a good way to find some. What are you angry about? Where are you upset? With whom? About what? Because anger is usually a great indicator of a deal gone bad. You know, the opportunity to purify your heart comes whenever conflict occurs. Conflict is a sign of an agenda collision. Something that you wanted is not happening. And you're upset. And at that point, there is no upside in the relationship. 
because you're not getting what you want. The deal isn't happening. But that represents a tremendous opportunity, just like it did in my relationship with God. Was I going to stay mad at God and pout, or was I going to humble myself and purify my heart? If at the point of conflict you decide to love this person, now, again, to be clear, that doesn't mean do what they want you to do. That's the deal approach. But if you try to figure out what, what can I do to be a benefit to them, what, what, how can I help them, and you give them that gift, at that point, even when the deal that you formed has gone south, you are choosing the agenda of real love. You are purifying your heart in this relationship, whether it's with God or with a person. So love first grows out of the soil of a pure heart. Mixed motives are deals, not love. Then secondly, it grows out of a good conscience. Love grows when we are willing to admit our sin, the wrong that we've done. Turns out that love is not only damaged by hidden agendas, it's also damaged by hidden lies. So conflict is the indicator of a double mind. That's what we just talked about. But conscience is the indicator of a double life. We feel guilt in our conscience whenever we've agreed to live by one standard and yet are living by another. We're living a double life. And at the point of guilt, at the point of conviction in our conscience, we can go one of two directions. We can either bring that sin, that wrong, into the light and confess that sin, or we can hide it in the dark and defend ourselves. Now, just as it is with a pure heart, a good conscience begins in our relationship with God. Here's what we read in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So if we claim to have fellowship, a relationship with him, and yet we walk in the dark, we're not willing to admit the truth about ourselves, then we're just lying, and we're not living by the truth. We don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' his Son purifies us from all sin. Walking in the dark is a relationship killer. Conversely, walking in the light is a relationship builder. Why? It's because bonds between people are formed whenever the two people agree on a standard that's bigger than them. That's the basis of trust. That's the foundation on which a relationship is built. When, and whenever you confess that you've done something wrong to this person, what you're pointing to is a standard bigger than both of you. And you're building the foundation of trust that allows this relationship to grow. Now, we tend to think of our conscience as kind of an independent guilt meter. You know, it's just ours. It's our conscience. But it turns out that our conscience is in no way designed to be independent. The word itself makes that very clear. Conscience, that word has two parts to it. The prefix, C-O-N, comes from a Latin word that means together. Science, the root of the word conscience, comes from a Latin word, Siri, that means to know. Now you know why Apple chose Siri as their voice assistant, to know. You want to know something? Ask Siri. 
But what conscience means then is this. Together we know. Not independently we know, but together we know. We were created to know what is right and what is wrong together. There's a lot of talk these days about your truth and my truth. But there is no your truth and my truth any more than there is your math and my math. There's just truth, and there's just math. And either we're right or we're wrong. And that important understanding is the basis not only of science, but of conscience, conscience. It's required for both. And so when someone asks forgiveness of another, they are inviting that person to look at the same standard together with them and agree that, yes, what I just did or what I did earlier was wrong. That, looking together at the same truth, builds trust. Now, we would prefer to look at the same standard that we're all doing perfectly, but that's not where the opportunities to build trust are. The opportunities really are when we've done wrong and we admit that we've done wrong. But the problem is, whenever I sin, my tendency is to fight my conscience. Maybe you experience this as well. I don't want anyone to know what I've done that was wrong. Or if I did it in front of them and they know, my preference is to defend it. It really wasn't wrong. Or, or to blame them for it, or maybe somebody else for it. To stay hiding in the shadows. Why do we do this? Because we think that if we come clean, it's going to damage the relationship. But actually, the opposite is true. It's coming clean that builds the relationship. We tend to think that love comes from a pure life. But what it says is it comes from a pure heart and a good conscience. But because we think that perfection, or at least as best as we can get, is the key to people loving us, then we, wanna, we don't want to admit the truth. Because if we admit the truth, then they're not going to love us anymore. But it's as we admit the truth about ourselves and as we step into the light that two things occur according to these verses we just read. First of all, we stop lying in our relationship to God and we have fellowship with God. And secondly, that affects our relationship. We have fellowship with others. Four of the most loving words that you or I can ever say are these words, will you forgive me? That's some of the most loving stuff you can do. Will you forgive me? And then state what it was. Love grows out of a good conscience. Then the last quality is a sincere faith. Love grows best with the safety net of faith under it, of trust in God under it. That's a sincere faith. John 3.16, the verse that most everybody knows, we are told that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, God can love the world. We can't. The world's too big. We're too small. Now, we can feel emotions about the struggles in the world, but we can't practically do much in the area of love when it comes to a global scale. And that's why Jesus told us to love our neighbors. 
not the world. God loves the world. Our job is to love our neighbors. What that means is in order for us to love, we have to be in neighbor proximity. But to get close enough to love, that also means we have to get close enough to be hurt. Whenever you give yourself to someone, what you're doing is you're placing a weapon in their hand. Now, they, they may not use that weapon, but you've opened up your heart, and therefore, you are taking the real risk that they will use whatever gifts of love that you've given them as a weapon to hurt you because your heart is now open to them. And that's a real risk because the truth about people is they're, well, they're just like you. They're just like me. Like you, like me. No one has an absolutely pure heart. Everyone has at least some hidden agendas and selfish motives in every relationship. And like you and like me, no one has a pristine conscience. Something is hidden. They may not even know the wrong. It may be hidden from them. So the question you have to ask logically is this. Why would you love anyone? Why would you trust anyone? Well, it's for the same reason a trapeze artist grabs the bar and swings out into the air and lets go and reaches for the hand of another. They're not planning to fall. But if they do, as you can see here, there's a big net under them to catch them. What that means is they can take the risk. It's the same when it comes to love. We need something, actually we need someone bigger to trust in than just the person that we're learning to love. We need a reason to take the kind of risk that love really represents. Nobody wants to get, get hurt. Nobody wants to fall. But if there's a net, then we can take the risk. And the net is God's love for us. That's at the foundation of our love for other people. Here's what we read in Ephesians chapter 3, 17 through 19. The Apostle Paul is writing this to the first century church in Ephesus. And this is his prayer. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Notice how it begins that you, now that you are rooted and established in love, now that that's the root of the tree, that that's the foundation of your life, the fact that God, through his son Jesus Christ, has forgiven you and loved you, that, that's the foundation of all foundations. You can build a lot on that foundation. Now that you've put God's love for you back in the center where it belongs and your love for him, the next thing that needs to happen, he says, is you need to grasp how much Christ loves you. Well, I thought you were already rooted and established. Well, you understand that he loves you, but now you need to grasp, really get a hold, really, really know how much Christ loves you. His love for you needs to take hold of you and expand in you and me. And this, it turns out, is not just a fact to know, or even something to really feel. This, it says, is a knowing that surpasses knowledge. What does that mean? In other words, this needs to become real. Not just something you know, 
It's something that is real to you. What's the difference between a, a thought in your mind and reality? The difference is experience. You know, it's, it's one thing in your mind to swim the Huntington Beach Pier. It's a very different thing to actually do that. I know that by experience. I did that years ago. And I thought, you know, salt water, you float. I'm a halfway decent swimmer. How hard can it be? Oh, it's hard. <laughs> and the way I swam that pair in my mind is really different than the way I swam it in reality. <laughs> I came around Ruby's and this nice little 15-year-old junior lifeguard paddled up and said, Sir, do you need help? Apparently, I looked like I needed help. And I did need help, but not from a 15-year-old. <laughs> so I said no. I could have died at that moment, but I would have died with my pride intact, which apparently <laughs> meant more to me at that point than living. And I made it. And what I experienced was very different than what I knew in my head. And that's what needs to happen about how much Christ loves you and me. Thoughts are invisible, but reality, well, that's three-dimensional. It has, as it says here, width and length and height and depth to it. God's love isn't something that you can just read about. You have to experience his love. How does that happen? Well, let's just say, for example, your understanding of Christ's love for you is three feet wide. I mean, I know you can't measure it in feet, but let's just for illustration purposes, say, say this is how much you understand. You, you've got a three-foot-wide understanding of how much God loves you through his son, Jesus Christ. How are you going to expand to four feet? Well, you're going to have to experience his love further out. God's going to have to take you to places of struggle and failure. And you're going to have to learn to experience, even there, his love for you remains unchanged. You know, one of the surprising things that I've experienced as I grow over time is the more I grow, the more I mature, the less impressed I am with myself. You know why? It's because for every area of struggle and weakness that I've had a measure of growth in, I've discovered many more that I didn't even know about. And so I've, I've had this experience of an expanding understanding of how much God loves me. You know, when I was in my 20s, I actually thought God got a pretty good deal with me. <laughs> it's embarrassing to say. But now that I'm on the eve of turning 60, I know that I am in no way a deal. I know that I am a product of the kindness and unfathomable mercy of God. I know that. I couldn't know that when I was 20 because I hadn't been banged up enough by my own failures and by the struggles of life. And it will just keep expanding. God will display his love for you in some of the darkest places. And you will begin to grasp the love of Christ, how much Christ loves you, and it will become the only real, solid, sure thing in your life. And really, all that you need, 
I mean, I think until we see Jesus face to face, we'll always want other things. But we'll grow to understand that's all we really need. And as you grasp that, you know what happens? You are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What does that mean? Well, imagine, again, for a moment, that your heart is a container. And on the side of the container, there's markings. You know, there's a quarter full, there's a half full, there's three-quarter, and there's full. If your heart reads all the fullness of God, what happens next? Overflow. The love that God has for you is poured out in a genuine love for others. Now, this is not something that takes 40 years to happen. You don't, you know, by the time you're 85, just the year before you pass, suddenly you have a full understanding of all of God's love for you. No, it keeps expanding. But over and over again, my heart has been filled with just a stunning awareness of how much God loves me. And it's in those moments that I have the best capacity to really love other people. Because I've got that net. I'm good. I can take the risk in this relationship. I can forgive here. I can give the gift here. Now, if God wanted us to be nice, that would be a stretch in some relationships. But I think it's possible. Now, you, you, we can be polite in most situations. But God isn't after niceness. He wants us to love. He wants us to actually inconvenience ourselves for the benefit of others. Now, only the Holy Spirit can grow the sweetness of that kind of fruit. But we're not just passive observers in this process. Oh, no. Our job is to be a part of the process of purifying our hearts by tearing up the deals as we become aware of them that we've made with God and with others. And then to keep our conscience clear by, as we become aware of it, admitting the wrong that we do and being quick to say, would you forgive me for this? And then by anchoring our love with a sincere faith in the foundation of God's love for us. A sincere faith is not a real strong emotion. It's a deep understanding. Now, we tend to think that love is, in this culture, based on sincere emotions. But sincere emotions, they don't last very long. A sincere faith, that endures. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we are grateful beyond words for the love that you've displayed for us, demonstrated through the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We again and again and again test your love for us, and you again and again show us your unlimited patience and kindness and mercy on our behalf. I pray for those in this room today who are feeling particularly alone, particularly wounded. God, I pray that you, I just echo Paul's prayer, that they would be rooted and established in love and that together with all the saints, they would grasp today the vast dimension of your love for them that you would fill their hearts with all the fullness of you. Teach us to love. We ask this now in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.